Thank you, Julie. Uh, keep your Bibles open. Uh, that would be very helpful as we look at this passage together. And let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you uh, for the joy and the privilege uh, to gather together and to hear your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that I will uh, speak your word faithfully today. I pray that by your spirit, uh, we will hear the things that we need to hear. Amen. Uh, I want to start today uh, with a, a very brief word association game. Okay, so the way it works is if you think the word I say has a positive association, just put your hand up a little bit. Don't forget to carried away. Just a little bit. Uh, if you think the word has a negative association, uh, then just put your hand on your head. Okay? Uh, so we'll, we'll start off easy. Uh, cats. Uh, <laughs> The, the room's pretty, pretty split, but uh, I'm not seeing a lot of support for the cats. Uh, dogs. Okay. Okay, people are happy to go all the way on dogs. Uh, not so much for cats. Shopping. Okay. Oh, generally positive. Uh, the females seem to be slightly more positive than the males. Uh, you know, read that as you may. Uh, the beach. Okay, pretty positive. Excellent. Commitment. I I just hear the tone of the room. I'm pretty sure the answer is supposed to be yes. Uh, But I'm just not sure. Hands down. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to commitment, uh, our culture uh, has kind of an ambivalent relationship. Uh, So we're happy, for example, uh, particularly amongst the younger folk, uh, to commit to getting a tattoo uh, for the rest of your life that covers your entire body. Uh, But we are not so willing to be committed to going to dinner next week. And so in Facebook, you know, where you've got yes, no and maybe, I reckon the most overused button is maybe. Uh, but, of course, under, underneath this, this fear of commitment uh, is an even bigger fear, uh, and that is the fear of missing out. Because if I choose one option, then perhaps I'm missing out on something much, much better. And so even when often when we win, we lose. You know, even when you, you think, OK, I've, I've got this you know, new dress, new shirt, and I go, this is fantastic – but you go home with this sort of slightly nagging feeling that perhaps I should have gone to another 18 stores and there might have been a better one uh, for less. Uh, and so we've got this very ambivalent sort of feeling towards commitment. And I think as Christians, we're not immune. Uh, so we love the idea of Jesus as saviour. Uh, we love the idea of Jesus as our friend. Uh, And we want to come to Jesus with all our sort of hopes and aspirations kind of gathered together. And we want to come to Jesus and say, bless me and bless everything that I want to do. As we look at this uh, passage today, uh, we're starting a, a new section in the book of Luke. It's often called the travel narrative as Jesus starts his journey towards Jerusalem. And it's not a light journey. It's not, you know, the hills are alive with the sound of music skipping through the meadows kind of journey. It's, it's a weighty journey. Uh, and, of course, we know where this journey is going to end as Jesus heads towards the cross. And all the way, as he goes, he calls people to commit. And he says to people, I want you to come with, with empty hands 
and to say, God, how can you fill them with your purposes and your plans? And so today I want to pick up uh, just two themes in this passage, uh, starting with the confronting reality of sin. And so as we look at this passage, if you've got uh, verse 51 open in front of you, uh, the NIV kind of sucks the emotional life out of it somewhat. Uh, Literally translated, this is what it says. When the days drew near for the fulfillment of him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's something evocative, isn't there, in the expression, he set his face. You know, it's an image of determination and resolve. Uh, But it also carries a sense of inevitability, doesn't it? Because we know where this is leading. This isn't leading to a palace or a position of power. This is leading to the cross. And so earlier in this chapter, in verse 22, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So under David and Solomon, Israel were this great nation. God had promised this promised land, you know, full of prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Israel received the land, but then forgot God. And so they neglected God. They neglected mercy and justice. And God used the nation of Assyria as the rod of his wrath. And after the Assyrians came the Babylonians. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Romans. And all the way through, there are these faithful remnant Jews, this small group of people, who are waiting for God to fulfill his promises, waiting for God to send his Christ, his anointed one, who is going to bring his kingdom. And so as as we get to this passage, we're sitting right on the beginning of that journey of God bringing his kingdom. And really, it's it's an astounding uh, thought when Jesus says, I am the only one, I'm going to the cross and I am the only one in all of humanity who can save you from sin. You know, it's an astounding sense of, you know, grandeur uh, and sense of significance. Imagine someone saying that. I'm the only one who can save humanity. That is a big call. You know, that is a rather grand sense of delusion. Uh, or he really is the son of God who comes to save his people. But I think perhaps even more you know, challenging for us, even more confronting, is the idea that God who created everything would choose to save something as insignificant as us. And so Psalm 8 asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. You know, if I can put this in a different perspective, imagine you wanting to save ant kind. Okay? All those little ants out there, you say, ant kind needs salvation. And so you step in uh, under a giant magnifying glass uh, to take the place for all of mankind. 
or ant kind. Yeah, it's a rather disturbing image, really, isn't it? Sorry about that. Uh, but you can kind of get, get some perspective, can't you, of, of the, the magnitude of God uh, and the smallness of us. And yet that is what Jesus does when he heads to the cross. And so it shows us, I think, uh, three very significant things. Uh, firstly, it says that our sin is more serious than we think. You know, if you went on uh, social media and you told people uh, that we're all sinners, I think the reaction would be swift and overwhelming. Yeah, how dare you attempt to shame me for living the way I want? That would be the reaction. It's my life. I should do what I want. And how dare you say anything different? But the reality is that before God, standing by ourselves on our own merits, then we all stand against God. Our relationship with God is broken and it is irreparable if it is just about me and my goodness uh, or my personal righteousness. We sit in a completely hopeless situation. And worse still, it's our nature. So it's inescapable and it's irreversible. Uh, But secondly, it also says that God is profoundly committed to justice. So God is willing to forsake his own dignity, his own comfort, his place as ruler over everything, to then be humiliated on a cross for our sake. So the righteous, the perfect, standing for the unrighteous so that we could have a relationship with God. And thirdly, that says we are far more valuable and loved than we could ever imagine. So when we look at Jesus' death on the cross, it says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we are loved not because of our goodness and not because of our skill or any other merit, but simply because we are God's creation. And he chooses to love his creation. And so now Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to solve the fundamental problem of sin and to bring the kingdom of God. As we come back to our passage, the first thing he does, so he's up in the north, the first thing he does is he travels south uh, to a Samaritan village. And before he even gets there, he's rejected. And so uh, the the disciples, they're outraged at what's just happened uh, because Jews and Samaritans haven't got on for a very long time. Uh, So the the disciples want a good smiting. Uh, They'd like to see, you know, fire from heaven. That's what these people deserve. Uh, But at this point in history, Jesus isn't coming as judge. Uh, Jesus is coming to bring salvation. And as the disciples uh, travel on the way with Jesus, people come up to him and they start to you know, ask him, what does it mean to follow you? And we start to see a picture of the cost of following Jesus. So verse 57, and this is really the crux of our passage today. A man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. 
Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When we think about the kingdom of God, we often think about it in terms of the future, don't we? You know, it's that future hope of no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin, where the dwelling place of God will be with man. Uh, And that is true. That is our future certain hope through Jesus. But the kingdom of God is also the present. So God didn't call us into his family and gather us as his people so that we could then sort of sit at the bus stop, sort of waiting for the bus to come and take us to glory and kind of entertain ourselves on the phone in the meantime. You know, that is not God's plan for his people. It's not a waiting game. Uh, As we share in God's kingdom now, we also share in his purposes And that comes at a cost. So when these three people come up to Jesus and says, Lord, I want to follow you, this is what he's saying to them. If you follow me, you must be prepared to give up everything. You must be prepared to give up the comforts and securities of this life. And for often, for most of us, that's what homes and houses are. They're safe spaces. And God says, you've got to be willing to give that up for the sake of sharing in my kingdom. If you follow me, then my purpose is to gather people into my kingdom. And that means that's now your purpose. And if you follow me, then you must keep your eye on me. And so Jesus is using and Luke's using these these three anonymous people to make a statement to everyone. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is what it means. It's all in. It's all or nothing. Uh, when I was uh, younger, uh, I haven't done it for a few years now, but I used to go and do track days uh, on the motorbike. Uh, and uh, there's two golden rules with track days. Uh, number one, don't crash. Uh, the, the second one is tightly related uh, to number one, uh, which is where you look is where you go. Uh, now, that's true uh, in all vehicles, so it's true on a push bike, it's true in your car, uh, but it's sort of particularly true you know, on a track day when things are a little bit quicker. Uh, so there's one particular corner uh, where you're coming in and you're doing give or take about 200, okay, and then you've got to drop down to 60. So, so you're going along and you pop up and you hit the brakes, uh, you're down in gears as quickly as you can, uh, and then you're looking through this corner. It's a big, long, tight corner. And all the way through, the temptation is to stop looking through the corner and start looking at the wall that you really don't want to hit. And, and so your brain is in this conflict, like quite literally, of, of feeling like you're, you're dragging yourself in the wrong direction. Uh, but all the way through... You look through the corner and you look at it, you know, watch the TV shows or the motorbikes on TV. You'll see that their head is almost, you know, way over there as they go through the corner. And it's, it's the same for, for us as we follow Jesus. Is we follow Jesus and we have to keep our eye on Jesus. Where we look is where we go. The temptation, of course, is to take our eye off Jesus 
uh, and to start looking at the world around us and to start thinking, well, gee, that looks pretty good. Or, you know, maybe I could do a bit of both. Maybe I could, you know, a bit of looking around the corner, a bit of looking at the world. And, of course, it doesn't work, does it? You know, Jesus calls us to be single-minded for him. And it's tough, isn't it? Because it's so many times, every single day, the temptation is to look somewhere else. And, of course, that's why we keep praying that God, through his spirit and through his word, will help us keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And to use the metaphor of the passage, you can't put your hand to the plough, look over your shoulder and expect to go in a straight line. If you're in, then you need to look ahead and that's where you go. So at some point we all need to make a choice, don't we? We need to commit to where we're going. Are we willing to let go of the self-indulgent life where it's all about me and my happiness? Are we willing to let go of the illusion of being king to recognise that Jesus is the one and only true king? Uh, Jesus is the one and only person and God who can give us lasting hope. And if the answer to that for you is yes then this passage calls us to one particular course of action. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that mandate then is affirmed again in the very next passage. So he talks about going and proclaiming. In the very next passage, we've got the 72 disciples who go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Then we get to the book of Acts and it's all about people going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God. So part of God's plan of gathering his people, a fundamental part of God's plan, is that we will then continue to work in his plan, gathering his people. I think for most of us, we find that pretty daunting, don't we? You know, we we kind of presume that our friends and family and and neighbours aren't really interested in talking about, you know, the big issues of life or faith or God, Uh, which is kind of convenient, really, because we also don't really want to rock the boat too much and we don't really want to risk the collateral damage that comes with, you know, talking about something that's so personal. Or we always hope for another opportunity down the road. Uh, Perhaps another day will be a better time to talk about something like this. And, of course, another day never quite comes. It's always just that little bit further down the road. And then there are some times when we have the opportunity, uh, and even just in the moment where it's all there and we've just got nothing to say, absolutely nothing comes to our head. We usually remember about half an hour later what we should have said. We're a genius half an hour later. Uh, But in the moment, it all just sort of disappears. Uh, I won the, uh, the other day, actually. Uh, I was out cycling uh, with Chris Gervin, who's uh, one of the guys in Evening Church, uh, and we, he uh, brings along a couple of mates. And it always finishes with coffee, because that's how cycling works. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense that you're dying of, of heat exhaustion and you have coffee, but it's just the game, all right? So don't mess with it. Uh, but we're sitting there having coffee uh, with these uh, five blokes, and, and one of the guys is talking about his trip to India and how he admired uh, the spirituality of, of the people uh, that, that he was meeting and their happiness. And in the moment, 
I could not think of a single thing to say uh, that would lead the conversation from this spirituality to talking about Jesus. Uh, I've got to say, I, I, I walked away. I, I knew it at the time. I'm, I'm racking my head. I've got nothing. Uh, I, I cycle home after that feeling you know, a, a bit disappointed in myself. Uh, but you know, another opportunity will come, uh, and I will be praying on that cycle, obviously a bit longer and a bit harder next time, uh, that when the opportunity comes again, that I will make the most of that opportunity. And of course, we recognise that it, it's not just about our words. Ultimately, it's going to be God convicting them of what is true. So if we think it's all about us getting just the right words in just the right time, uh, then we're, partly we're kidding ourselves. That's not true. And partly we're, we're trying to take God's place in the whole process. God will use our bumbling words to fulfill his plans. Our part in it is to be faithful. Uh, so let me suggest uh, three things, oh, sorry, five things that I think are helpful for me uh, that I can learn from this and hopefully encourage you in it. Uh, firstly, I th- start each day praying for an opportunity. I don't know what that's going to be. It could be the person on the bus. It could be talking to a work colleague. It could be talking to a spouse. It could be talking to a family member. But start the day praying that God will give you an opportunity to have a conversation today. Uh, That would be a good spot to start. Uh, Number two, uh, let people know that you're a Christian. Uh, Because it's really awkward to sort of bring it up sort of six months into a relationship. Uh, I know we've been talking about footy and the weather for ages, but surprise, I'm a Christian, and would you like to talk about it? Uh, And it's the same with with your neighbour. You you know, you, you sort of get to a point where you think, oh, if I just have enough relationship, then we could talk about it. Uh, I think the opposite's actually true. You know, once people know you're a Christian, that actually gives you at least a starting point of permission to talk about uh, bigger things with them. So at very least, perhaps weave it into the conversation that you went to church this weekend. You know, there's a starting point. It's a morsel, isn't it? Number three, uh, don't always feel it's about you giving answers. So think about what questions you can ask. What are questions you can ask about life and faith and their worldview? And genuinely be interested. How, how do they perceive reality? What do they think life is about? And then out of that, think about how they might respond to that question. And then what's a, another question that you could ask that, that might sort of take that, you know, that little bit further? Uh, so it might go something like this. Here's my, my hypothesis. I won't play both. I'll play both people. It gets awkward, it's a bit schizophrenic, but that's okay. Uh, but, you know, what did you do on the weekend? And, they, and you answer, well, I'm a Christian and I went to church. Do you ever go to church? No, I'm not into that stuff. What do you mean by that? And they say, I just think life's what you make it. And it's all about, you know, each person finding their own path and journey. And you could ask, well, why do you think that? And hopefully that then leads to, it might just be you understanding their worldview. It might be an opportunity to then move on and share your perspective of life and faith and what it's all about. But if we don't sort of at least try uh, and invite those questions, then there is no opportunities. And I've done some of those sometimes and they've gone absolutely nowhere. In fact, if the person could have just got up and left, they probably would have. Uh, but, you know, it, it just sort of, they just shut it down and, and I don't want to talk about this. That's life sometimes. But other times, 
Actually, it's the start of a conversation. Uh, number four, uh, follow-up conversations. So, you know, is there a book that you can give them to read? Uh, personally, I like uh, Reason for God uh, by Tim Keller. I think it's very empathetic uh, to someone who's not a Christian. I think it gives a reasonable account of what it is to be a Christian and some of their objectives, uh, objections. Uh, but, you know, what, what's a book you could give them that's sort of appropriate for them and, and their personality? You know, if they're an academic type person, sure, give them an academic kind of book. If they're less of a reader, you know, you might want to think about, uh, you know, pointing them to a YouTube clip or something like that. But, but where, can you, where can you point them after that? Uh, another way, uh, invite them to church. Uh, most people who become Christians as adults in particular will become a Christian at church. So just coming to a normal church service and hearing the gospel proclaimed each week. And so as they come in, as they hear the word of God proclaimed, as they see it lived out in the people around them, so as they hear us as we praise God, as we pray to God, and perhaps most significantly for them, as we welcome them into the community, all of that is really significant. All of that is a testament to what God has done in our lives. So if I can put it visually, because I think sometimes we try to separate the idea of evangelism and church. So uh, if we've got it on the screen, is there another one? Little little block? Let let me see if I can do it. I'll use my hands. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, Sometimes, sorry about that, Liz. You're hiding there. No one can see you. You're safe. Uh, uh, if we're talking, uh, some people think you know, church should either be about evangelism or discipleship. You know, it's about people on the outside or people on the inside. Uh, other people think it should be you know, both. So it's evangelism and discipleship, and, and they have sort of equal place in our role. Uh, I think this is actually a, a better picture, which is that actually as we gather together, we gather as God's people. Uh, so it is God's people gathering to praise God. But on that foundation, we have an opportunity to share the gospel with the people around us. So we never want to compromise what we are doing here, that we are clearly gathering as God's people. Uh, but that is a powerful witness to the people around us. And that's a brilliant opportunity for evangelism. So absolutely, we have an opportunity to share the gospel out there every day, every week. But we also have an opportunity in here. Uh, And that's what uh, the Acts 2 passage gives us a picture of. So every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we have a picture of God's people gathering, but God using that to reach and gather more people together. And our last one, and we've talked about this briefly today, is we've got a mission coming up. So here's a brilliant opportunity uh, where someone else does you know, some of the legwork for you. Uh, we've got something to invite them to where they will hear the gospel clearly proclaimed. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope that that week in and by itself is a powerful week, that God uses that. Uh, but I also hope it's a catalyst, uh, that it re-engages us as a church. And as we start a new year, we recommit 
to how are we sharing the gospel with the people around us? And how do we encourage each other in that? Because as I look around our community, no matter how many people are in this room, if you've got every church and every person in every church in, in this area, it would be nothing compared to the number of people in our community. So whatever size we are, I hope there's this, this godly discontent where we go, we want more. Not because we want to be bigger for the sake of being bigger, but because we want more people to know Jesus, love him and be saved. That's what more is about. More people loving Jesus, more people with a certain hope of salvation and heaven. So if you're a Christian here today, then God doesn't want the scraps of our devotion. He doesn't want the scraps of our time. He calls us to be single-minded and committed in following him. And it comes at a cost. As Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, he journeys to the cross. And that will be our journey as well. That there will be suffering. There will be persecution. But in that, there will also be certain hope of the glory that we will share in with Jesus in heaven. And so we want that for ourselves. We yearn for that for ourselves. And I hope equally we yearn for it for the people around us who we love. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you show each of us, uh, that in your mercy you would gather us together as your people. Lord, I pray that we have the same love for the people around us, uh, that we are willing to overcome our fears uh, and our own uh, feelings of inadequacy uh, to share your word faithfully with them and to be a godly example in the world of your goodness to us. Lord, give us courage and boldness uh, as we step out into our community. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, uh, that you will, through your spirit, convict other people of your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. Amen.